Hello, I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. First topic today is a, um, you know, pseudo platform company. Really, you know, the bulk of their company is is more like a Robin Hood than it is a, a platform company. Coinbase, we've, we spoke about on the last show that, you know, they had done this secondary listing, which effectively valued the company at $100 billion, a hair over $100 billion valuation, which was roughly 100x revenue multiple uh, to, yeah, to the business. So we have more information. We've got their S1. And, and I think the interesting thing with Coinbase is you got to take a step back and you got to say, okay, yeah, let's look at their revenue. Let's look at their revenue growth. Let's look at their EBITDA and, and look at their free cash flow, which is nice. They're nicely profitable. They're free cash flowing, uh, a lot of money. Coinbase has been doing crypto for just about longer than anybody. Wouldn't they own some Bitcoins when Bitcoins were, you know, at five bucks? You know, I'd kind of heard through the grapevine that they had a lot of crypto assets on balance sheet. And so I decided to look into this. And sure enough, here's an article from uh, just in the past week. Uh, Coinbase says it holds Bitcoin as an investment on its balance sheet. Okay. Uh, this came out just a part of this blog post. This guy, Brett, their head of institutional sales, he said, since our founding in 2012, Coinbase has held Bitcoin and other crypto assets on our balance sheet, and we plan to maintain an investment in crypto assets as we believe strongly in the long-term potential of the crypto economy. Makes sense, right? Of course, they believe in crypto. That's their whole business. So, you know, do they think that Bitcoin's going to go to 100,000 bucks? Probably, right? So here's the full blog post uh, from where that article was then, uh, you know, kind of based off of. But this article was about Coinbase helping institutions buy crypto, right? Like Tesla saying, yeah, we bought 1.5 billion in crypto. Coinbase presumably helped Tesla and other companies that are wanting to put money into crypto, right? Hey, we've done this for ourselves. We, Coinbase, have been investing in crypto as an asset for the business, and we can help you do the same thing too. So I'm looking through this thing, and we can go over the numbers. We can go, go over the revenue. We can go over their their EBITDA. We can, I mean, let's be honest, stock prices aren't really based in reality anyway right now, but we can go over that stuff. When you look at the business and you say, yeah, their revenue is exploding, you know, here's the nuts and bolts, right? Almost 1.15 billion in revenue. This is like 96% them taking a fee when, you, when you're buying uh, or sending or doing some sort of trading activity uh, around crypto. It's up from uh, 533 million in 2019. A uh, little shy to a little shy of 1.3 billion in 2020. But again, look at where, you know, the large, large, large majority of that is from the actual kind of trading. The other revenue line items here, um, that's actually where the platform dynamic of Coinbase could come into this. And they do a very nice job of speaking to this partner ecosystem. But, but, but the trading app of it, like a Robinhood, is really more of a linear business proposition. And it is a platform business. The platform business opportunity is really on the partner ecosystem, the development platform, letting people build apps 
and tools on top of all the Coinbase infrastructure, kind of like a pseudo plaid meets development platform model for crypto and all the other kind of blockchain kind of systems you can build on top. That I can see a true network effect around. Other than that, you know, this is actually more linear in the sense that they need to integrate and and just support more alt currencies coming onto the platform. But but that is not really you know, giving them a, a platform model, like an investment platform type of model. It's not very fragmented supply. There's a graphic, uh, which I'll find, basically shows that more and more of the trading in crypto is moving to alternative currencies. Oh, here it is. So you can see here, the black is other crypto assets. The dark blue is Bitcoin. The light blue is Ethereum. And the gray is Litecoin. You can see 2019, right? You had over 80% of all the trading volume in those three coins. Um, now look, just one year, 2020, you have a huge jump going to 44% from 18 to 44% into other. And then the supported assets number down here, this 25 plus in 2019, 45 plus in 2020, that's all the alternative currencies that I'm talking about, right? That is a very kind of linear equation, right? They need to, for every one of these new crypto alt currencies that they bring onto the platform, there's a whole build out for that, right? There's a lot of integration work that goes into that. They got to figure out which ones to support, how to support it. This is another really cool chart here on the growth of the institutional. Look at this, the dark blue relative to retail. Look at these institutional flows um, really for the past couple of years, but look at just Q4 of that $57 billion number. Uh, I mean, that's pretty phenomenal. One of my favorite kind of tech uh, media groups, the information that I like to rag on, um, you know, saying how how just asinine Elon was to put money uh, in into Bitcoin. Well, looks like his 1.5 billion is actually a drop in the bucket uh, compared to the other $55.5 billion worth of institutional trading volume. That doesn't mean it's all going into uh, to crypto, right? You could have outflows in that number too, but still don't think Elon's alone, clearly with other institutions investing. So anyway, point is more of a linear business, but it does take a lot of uh, effort to support these other altcoin currencies and to onboard those. So there's a lot of resources going into that. I do think that gives uh, Coinbase a pretty you know, significant advantage um, for them to just continue to invest in that uh, more than their other competitors. But there are a lot of other competitive apps and wallets and this kind of stuff. It, it is not a super differentiated business. It's just, you know, it's been very popular and they're very financially well off and they make great margins on what they do. Will that last? I don't know. But it it does not have the the same platform uh, defensibility that you would think, given how many times they use the word platform. Last point here, I thought this was pretty interesting on the ebbs and the flows of the price of Bitcoin, the peaks and the troughs, and and how you know it goes up, it then retreats a little bit, and then it continues to go up. You know, I think the funny thing about this is, I mean, they could they could just have they they could just purely build a business on just being a crypto investor is because of the visibility that that Coinbase has on the on the trends and what's going on in the market. Um, 
they could just be a hedge fund and uh, and make plenty of money, even though that's not how they're pitching themselves to the SEC, but still. Okay. AMC here. This is interesting because back in the summer, when I was talking about when Amazon Prime Video struck deals with the uh, movie studios to do direct uh, releases of movies over Amazon Prime, and this is just really bad for movie theaters. And what happened today um, is that Disney came out and said, yep, uh, it's never going to be the same. Movies are not going to be distributed as, as they used to be distributed. And, you know, that spells as really bad news for AMC. So here is, here is the prediction. Not because people are going to be concerned about going into a movie theater and, and germs and that kind of stuff. Instead, I think the movie studios just gave away a huge amount of leverage to the tech monopolies, Amazon in this case. And, and I think they might be doing something similar with Apple and, and other players, maybe Google. But once you give $20, once you set the price tag at $20, you can't raise that price tag in the future. And once you now set consumer behavior that I can now watch a movie that's in the theater for $20 from the comfort of my own home, how do you change that consumer behavior? How do you roll that back? I think it's going to be very difficult. And I think you're going to see, A, it's going to take a while until people can go back to movie theaters. So I don't think this is just a flash in the pants, few week kind of thing. This is going to be a many months kind of behavior change here where movies that aren't going to be delayed until movie theaters come back. Movies that are now would be in the theater. Now can you can pay 20 bucks, watch it from home. I think it's going to be very difficult for movie theaters to regain the same window of exclusivity that they had before coronavirus. I don't think they're going to be able to claw that back. Maybe they can claw some of it back, but even if they claw some of it back, the window of exclusivity from when it's in the theater versus now direct to, you know, direct uh, on demand on, on one of these video streaming products is going to be significantly shorter. I'd say that came true. And this was, when was this video? April. This was April of 2020. Even though there are states and obviously there's, you know, places throughout the United States that, um, you know, are, are now open for business, right? And you can go and watch movies. But even despite all of that, uh, what Disney just announced is really the, the nail in the coffin here for AMC. Disney CEO indicates theatrical window won't return to normal. Chapek here said that once the pandemic ends and theater going returns to near normal levels, he doesn't expect to uphold the previous tradition of waiting more than two or three months after a movie was released in theaters before making it available to rent. While he's dedicated to some kind of exclusive run in theaters for Disney's biggest movies. Wow, that's a lot of qualifiers. The length of time between big screens and the streaming will be far shorter. Yeah, considering Disney is the biggest uh, movie studio by far, uh, when you just look at their share of dollar, you know, for theater, uh, this is really bad news. This actually just came out earlier today. What is AMC stock doing? It's down. It's down almost 5%. Now, it obviously had a bunch of spikes here from, uh, from some more meme stock peaks, which is still not back to where it was, um, still up a little bit from, you know, from, from, from meme inflation, but still taking a step back from stocks, which just don't make much sense uh, in, in general. But maybe if AMC had had its own 
you know, really done some like aggressive M&A, but how could they have done it? I mean, their stock really, they were on the brink of bankruptcy. So, I mean, they just didn't have much to do about digital going into COVID. And then they lost much leverage that they had just capitalization wise to actually do any M&A if they could take their relationships with studios and then, you know, buy some kind of like video streaming app company. Maybe they should have bought Quibi, right? Buy Quibi, put movies into Quibi and say, hey, movie studios, we have a digital property and we have, you know, the the theater, the in-person property. And that would have given AMC more leverage with the uh, studios. But, you know, now they don't really have a leg to stand on. Not looking good for AMC. It's honestly surprising. They have a $3 billion market cap. That's even at $9 a share. I mean, their share is at, you know, a little under six bucks. So it's still surprising to me. It's actually a billion plus billion dollar company just considering COVID. But now not to mention your largest supplier saying, yeah, those exclusives, like they're not going to come back. And even if they do, they're going to kind of be there, but not really. Okay. And obviously you've just seen all the movie studios say, yeah, we got to go direct to consumer. We got to build our own, you know, our own direct to consumer streaming business. And we're going to spend billions of dollars on it. Um, you know, and, and that's what we've been cataloging uh, a bunch of uh, over the past number of months here. Another just last little tangent on this. I mean, is look at CBS Viacom stock here. It's, it's a 40 plus billion dollar company. And it's almost at $70 a share. Look at this thing in November. It's $28. Like, what, what changed in this company in the past three months as to, as to why it should two and a half X? Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? All right. But I can tell you what's for sure is bye-bye movie theaters. So what is it with the Robin Hood situation? You know, there's like a, a million hours of, of video fit, footage on Robinhood. Um, I'm going to do my best to give you the Robinhood recap in one minute. Let's start the clock. Basically, Vlad has gone back and forth now with Elon. He's gone back and forth with Portnoy. Here is why everyone's on Vlad's case. Robinhood was built to support retail traders. What he needs to say, and he's not saying because he's bending the knee, Who's he bending the knee to? He's bending the knee to, to the Fed, to FINRA, to the banks. Because what he's not saying is that these regulators are the ones that had an abnormal, very extraordinary request for capital. $3 billion request. 10x what it ever had been requested before. Just because GameStop, GameStop and meme stock trading went crazy, you're going to 10x the entire you know, of whatever volume Robinhood has done before, now that capital requirement just got 10x overnight. That doesn't make any sense. And what and and that is then what squeezed Robinhood and all the other retail brokerages. It's the OTCC, it's the regulators. And you want to know who sits on the board of the regulators of the OTCC? All the big banks. And that is who Vlad is too scared to call out because he's reading from a script from his lawyers. And if he ever came out and started to actually take a stand against actually, you know, the man and, and, and Wall Street proper, they would crush his business. But that is ultimately what everyone is seeing and not actually saying Vlad has bent the knee, he has capitulated, 
And it was the regulators that squeezed the retail investors. And that really should be Robinhood's role to stand up and say that this request was inappropriate, that it was uh, unjustified and extraordinary, but beyond what was uh, justified. And he's not saying it, and he won't say it, and he won't, he won't cast any blame upstream. That's the problem with Vlad. That's why Robinhood has sold out. Maybe that was a minute. I don't know. I did my best there. Uh, okay. Another uh, topic of the show. Censorship. Two plus two equals five. It's like we're living in 1984. Our Orwellian overlords, i.e. the big tech content monopolies, uh, just continue on their censorship craze. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, there's just a myriad of examples of this. So here are just a, a couple that have just happened in the past. I don't know, you know, every few days, there's a bunch more examples, but I've been talking on the show that, you know, crypto has been censored by big tech and content platforms and social media platforms for years, the crypto community and crypto content. So you had another big uh, censorship here from YouTube just in the past week. YouTube deletes this cryptocurrency news channel called Coindesk. They deleted them and now they brought them back. Uh, this is one of the most popular cryptocurrency news websites. YouTube said the outlet had severe and repeated violations of their community standards. Um, they'd been publishing since 2013. In an email, YouTube wrote, they have content that encourages illegal activities or incites users to violate YouTube's guidelines. It's not allowed on YouTube, but failed to provide any further explanation according to Coindesk. They send you this email. They say, uh, you're promoting illegal stuff. And um, you're violating our guidelines. Okay, ban, delete right? The account is deleted. Luckily, these guys were able to get in touch with YouTube. Peter Saddington, another guest on the show, never really was able to do that. We're attempting to get in touch, to get in direct touch with YouTube, the Coindesk CEO said. And it looks like they were able to uh, negotiate with them to come online. We've seen people come back on YouTube, but they're demonetized or their content is shadow banned. So, uh, this is just another of now a litany of episodes of the crypto community being silenced by content platforms, tech monopolies, etc. Another one. Twitter. Twitter says it purged dozens of accounts for undermining faith in NATO. Mm, okay. Twitter has announced it recently suspended dozens of accounts for undermining confidence in NATO. It's part of a broader purge of almost 400 accounts believed to have ties to Russia, Armenia, and Iran, uh, da, 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 and further said, 100 accounts amplifying narratives that undermined faith in, narrative in NATO and targeted the United States and the European Union. I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a huge, <laughs> I'm clearly an American that loves this country. People want to undermine NATO, let them undermine NATO. I mean, just net net this doesn't this doesn't help the cause this this goes against the platform grain of freedom of information uh and and supporting you know creators and producers here so this was funny uh this is barstool talking about twitter's recent changes so we know that so just a few weeks ago twitter bought uh review twitter bought review 
end of January. We talked about that on the show. It's it's, it's a Substack competitor, sm- much smaller Substack competitor. Helps helps people, you know, have email newsletters and then monetize the email newsletter. So Twitter bought like the much smaller competitor to Substack. They said we couldn't buy Substack. Substack wouldn't agree to a deal with us. Okay. That's a that's a deal execution fail. Now, literally a couple of weeks later, after closing that transaction, now they're already announcing to shareholders that they're going to start to monetize this. Twitter lets users monetize tweets with Superfollow. Twitter announces an upcoming paid feature called Superfollow, which gives users the ability to monetize their content. So less than a month after announcing the acquisition, they now are already announcing you know, how they're going to monetize, uh, monetize this stuff and now give you super, super follows. I mean, it's not ready. I mean, it just, it's so premature. You just closed this. This is a baby company. Review had raised less than a million dollars. They cheaped out to buy review because they couldn't spend the, enough money to buy Substack. And now less than a month after the thing closing, they're already announcing the feature and like showing screenshots. I mean, does this show desperation? I think it does. The information is throwing shade that is Jack Dorsey going to be able to change? He's been CEO for five years. They say, with any luck, Dorsey will deliver on his promises and make some meaningful changes to Twitter, but no one should be too surprised if he fails. Does the CEO really change this much after five years? Jack is coming out with all these promises about adding 50% revenue in two years, whatever it is. Double revenue by 2023. That's his commitment. Um, And... Oh, they bought this thing. And then a month later, hey, super follow. Look at how we're going to monetize this. I mean, this isn't how it works. This isn't how you do successful M&A. You don't buy the thing. And then three weeks later, are now, you know, it's just, it's, it's pre-baked. It's all rushed. Twitter, late to the game, horrible product and business model innovation. And we're already seeing horrible execution on this Substack review newsletter premium subscription, it just seems rushed. And this is what happens when you rush it. Then the internet piles on and says that you're dumb. Uh, and I've already said worse things about Twitter's management team. So next topic. On the same theme though. So the over censorship of big tech I think it's created a huge macro opportunity for alternative content social media platforms. Um, This is a trend. Big tech has to invest in more censorship, safety, moderation. We just saw that, what we were talking about here, what Twitter's doing with safety. And they're just going to, you know, they're on that that flywheel, right? That flytrap. They're just going to continue to invest, invest. They've already spent billions of dollars. They're going to just double and triple down on that strategically. The alternative content platforms don't have the money to do it and take a counterpoint perspective, which is around free speech and much less content censorship and regulation and moderation. We've already seen now a bunch of different content startups that we've talked about from my five oxymorons to uh, Clubhouse to Telegram to um, you know others that I'm probably forgetting here. But here are some more. So there's another one here called Dispo. Uh, it's a camera app co-founded by um, this guy, uh, David Dobrik, who's a big YouTube guy, you know, has a big social following. And so Dispo uh, is, you know, part of that counter wave, uh, a- appealing to a different form of content creator, 
you know, this whole article is about how they they didn't want the app to just be used by a bun- bunch of VCs. Employees at Dispo were explicit about not inviting a bunch of venture capitalists. And instead, this uh, investor gave his code to his 12-year-old daughter and several, several, several of her closest friends. So trying to seed this with a much different audience than, say, what Clubhouse has been doing, you know, with a lot of that kind of tech rowdy community. So Dispo recently raised money. They raised uh, allegedly about $20 million in the past couple of weeks here at about a $200 million valuation. So you can see there's, there's just going to be a wave of new content platforms, new social media apps. There's a bunch of already in existence that have gotten insane traction um, in just in the past month or two here. And now there's a bunch of new ones that are launching and picking up a lot of speed. So I think this is a whole new opportunity. Um, going back to the whole theme of the show, right? Traditional media companies, uh, uh, News Corp tried to do this with that billion dollar thing with MySpace decades ago. That blew up. But how can traditional media invest in the decoupling of big tech monopolies like Google and Facebook um, outside of uh, government intervention like we're seeing in Australia and Poland? The answer is to help out these up and coming alternative social media and content platforms, which now there are, you know, a growing number of them and uh, and, you know, looking for capital, looking for strategics. On the flip side of this, another example of this is there are even there are now more uh, startups offering tools for creators. Stir is another not a content platform, but it is another app to help creators. Right? We've talked about the coming uh, public listing. Am I sure it might be a direct listing? Um, might be IPO for um, for Patreon. And, you know, a whole wave Substack would be kind of a niche within the Patreon bucket of, of tools for creators. There's a whole class of startups here, which are just creating tools for this creator economy. Um, Stir Money is actually, you know, one of the most recent ones here. Just doing a fundraise. Uh, looks like they got their $100 million valuation. Unclear of exactly how much money they raised from this. But the startup here is uh, helping. Uh, video and audio producers, writers, and performers manage their income they generate from ads on social media and via direct payments from fans. Um, and this guy, Casey Neistat, you know, he's a big creator, uh, big following, and he's one of the early investors in Stir. So, you know, where we see this overzealous content censorship creates another opportunity. Over here, which is these alternative, this alternative kind of creator community, both from content platforms and social media startups, and now you know tools to help creators better monetize and, and better manage their audience, kind of off of the the content platform. So a lot of activity going on in this space. I think very important to make sure that these this creator economy is not silenced and has you know other channels outside of the the tech monopoly channels which is very hard to decouple from on that note follow us on uh, odyssey thank you very much for joining us that's it for a sandwich take all I'll talk to you soon